When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jean Lee from the University of Arizona. Joining us in this episode today is Dr. Rosa Omuratek and his new book, The Zen Buddhist Philosophy of D.T. Suzuki, Strengths, Foibles, Intrigues, and Precision. It was recently published through Bloomsbury, as a part of the Bloomsbury Introductions to World Philosophy series. Rosa is a scholar of philosophy and translation studies at the Aichi Prefectural University in Japan. This book contains a brief introduction to D.T. Suzuki, who is a philosopher from pre-war Japan who had a profound influence in the spreading of Zen Buddhism worldwide. Rosa also introduces some of Suzuki's key ideas as well as the English translation for two of Suzuki's works. Welcome, Rosa. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So D.T. Suzuki is such an interesting figure. He's written so much about the aesthetics of Japanese culture, um, the ideals of Japanese beauty, and, of course, Zen Buddhism. So how did you get into the study of D.T. Suzuki? Well, the first time um, I came across D.T. Suzuki, um, it wasn't really in connection with my studies or whatever. I was an undergraduate student and like many, many years ago, like a, a lot of undergraduate students, I was always kind of excited by any kind of edgy, radical alter- alternative ideas I came across. And a friend of mine, John Walsh, he, he came across a bunch of um Zen books, D.T. Suzuki Zen books, and when I started reading it, I was quite fascinated by it. Um, you know, is is kind of very alternative, uh, kind of um, unexpected ideas. Um, now, I read that in conjunction with an awful lot of other ideas uh, I was excited about at the time. You know, um, and even though it was interesting, it was kind of like reading about the Spanish Civil War. It was it was something far away that was exciting, romantic, but adventurous but you know had little to do with me um so that came and went that first contact with dt suzuki i, I went to J- japan I, I started doing japanese studies went to japan um kind of knew then that dt suzuki uh his, his descriptions of zen is not fully connected with what modern zen might be really uh, what modern japan might be really like but i was still kind of always he was always there to back my mind as the kind of the first Japanese philosopher I'd ever encountered. Um, later, when I went back into um, postgraduate work, I was doing um, kind of translation theory, uh, the philosophy of translation. I felt that D.T. Suzuki might be a good case study of, of 
the actual translation of philosophy and history, how, how Zen and Buddhism and all that was translated into English. So I kind of used him for my, my dissertation on the philosophy of translation. Um, I have to say, as well as that, as well as being a good case study for translation theory, um, just reading D.T. Suzuki over the years was a huge education for me because he was so such a wide... Uh, he had a, his his area was such so wide ranging and his, he was so prolific that for me it was a great education in, in not only Zen but Buddhism, Asian religions, Asian history, Asian philosophy. Even he, Suzuki himself was so connected to early twentieth century into other intellectuals like uh, from Jung as well. It, it, it kind of you know he t- he touches on d- them as well. So just for him, he's been a huge teacher for me. You know, like any teacher, of course, I have my. Uh, doubts about arguments about certain things but definitely you know reading him has been a huge massive education for me fascinating now i guess i'll jump to the obvious question who is dt suzuki and what did he do that made him so famous and influential okay so dt suzuki um his dates uh are 1870 to 1966 so he lived quite a long time and wrote throughout most of his life uh, so he spans a huge chunk of the uh, 20th century starting off from late 19th century japan and um, where what makes him so influential in in you know history or the history of ideas is basically he wrote about zen in english that that kick starts it all um now people write about religions all other religions all the time okay but his writings in zen were so um uh, rhetorically powerful. He he presented Zen as this kind of not just one more religion, but the, the kind of the basic principle of all religions that it presents a certain knowledge, understanding of the world that you know no nobody who's grown up with in within the Western traditions of philosophy will be able to understand it. That it presents a whole new vision of of life, of the world, of selfhood. He he wrote all, all this in and and used an awful lot of um, Zen stories, Zen koans and, um, you know, uh, Japanese and Chinese literature that, that it just fascinated an awful lot of people, you know, uh, an awful lot of um, Western intellectuals. And um, f- for a while, um, for a while, uh, Suzuki would have been, for the West, for, for the intelligentsia of the West, kind of Asia's foremost philosopher. If If you wanted to read something about Asian philosophy, he was the guy you would go to, okay? He, he's the book you would take down off the library. Now, he, he doesn't have that status now, but for many decades he did. Um, and um, and not just among the, the, you know, intellectuals. Also, towards the 50s, there was what was called the Zen boom, where um, Zen actually became quite fashionable uh, in, in, in America, okay? Like, there's a whole, I think it's cosmopolitan magazine has a whole spread about dt suzuki okay and his new zen fashion that that you know became quite quite popular uh, you know um and um um but not only did he write about zen he he was uh, le- le- what's less known about him is that he, he also wrote about other s- s- um sects of buddhism like, like jodo um um huyang kegon um and and also wrote wrote quite a lot of about um, you know a- Asian philosophy in in general. Um, he was also a great translator. He, he learned Sanskrit and translated Sanskrit 
uh, sutras into Japanese and English. Um, and and he, he wrote an awful lot of columns for, for or Japanese newspapers. Okay, so very prolific, very influential, a great network who seemed to know everybody. Okay, all the big t- top names of Western uh, philosophy and psycho- psychoanalysis, you know, Eric Fromm, even Heidegger knew of him and met him. Uh, even in within Japan, he his his high school buddy was um, um, Nishida Kitaro, um, and he had a big impact on on the Kyoto School. So um, so yeah, so so that just through his works and through his networking, he he's been hugely influential in you know a- Asian philosophy in general. That is very interesting, uh, and it's it's it always amazes me how uh, influential Zen Buddhism is, or how um, many people conceive it as the representative aspect of Japanese culture. Even nowadays, uh, we would have students coming to classes of Japanese civilization or Japanese religion, and when we ask them, "Why did you want to learn about Japan?" they say, "Oh, because I'm interested in Zen Buddhism." Actually, they don't say Buddhism; they just say Zen. So um, that's always an amazing part. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this point later. Yes, yeah, but yeah. in your book, um, in introducing his philosophical ideas, you divide them into self, knowledge, and world. How does his philosophy center around these themes? Yes. Well, actually, the reason why I've divided it into self-knowledge and world came from the one of the editors, um, Takeshi Morisato. It's, it's thanks to him I, I was able to write this book. He, he suggested it to me, and he, he kind of said, uh, either he said, you can or you're meant to divide into self-knowledge world. And for a while, I'd been trying to write a book about Suzuki, but because he's so what, his philosophy is so broad and scattered, I couldn't really get it together into a system. And when um, Takeshi suggested a self-knowledge world and I started to think about it, suddenly all the, it was like a jigsaw, all the pieces fitted together. And I could see there is a certain system behind um, Suzuki's philosophy. And um, it, it all connects in the sense of you, you can start with either self or knowledge or world. But if you start with self, like I, I do in my book, you can see that selfhood is... Um, can conclude concludes a non-selfhood okay we don't have an essentialized self okay we we exist in the here and now that can't be connected with the the cause effect chain of the the rest of the world okay um so we've no we've no selfhood as such and if you uh, something if you know the world through your non-selfhood rather than you know the everyday knowledge where you're looking out on the world but where you're so infused with the world um that that is a certain type of knowledge. It's the most profound knowledge because it's knowledge that you don't find. It's you know it without trying to know it. Without it's, it's you know it so much that you can't not know it. Okay, you exist here and now. You can't not know that. Okay, um, and this has implications for our vision of the world. It, it leads to a kind of a non-dualistic vision of the world where. We do maybe experience the world in kind of uh, I'm there and the objects over there, but really, the more we penetrate into it, there's this huge non-dualistic oneness to the world. Okay, um, so you can describe his system by starting from any of those points. Describe the world, you get to this non-dualistic knowledge, you get to this notion of selfhood, or, or you can go the other way. But either way, the all self-knowledge do world do connect and do conclude 
in each, uh, you know, the, the one um, uh, an inquiry into one, what is knowledge, what is self, what is the world, will lead to a conclusion of the other. Okay. Fascinating. Um, actually, um, in in a, in a recent, very recent interview that I just did with Takeshi Morisato on his new book um, on Tanabe Hajime and the Kyoto School, he also talks about this issue of self and no self in Tanabe Hajime's philosophy. Um, would you say Tanabe's philosophy and D.T. Suzuki's, their understanding of this no selfhood are along the same lines? Um, do they kind of draw from similar inspirations or how do they differ? Okay, um, that's an interesting question because actually they, um, Nishitani talks, Nishitani, another Kyoto school philosopher, talks about having discussions and arguments with Tanabe where Tanabe was quite irritated by Suzuki's dismissal of philosophy. Um, Tanabe had written a book about Dogen and, and uh Suzuki kind of said, oh, that, that's too much philosophy, and Tanabe was, didn't like that. Um, so th- there, is, there was, uh, unusually for the, all the other Kyoto s- s- philosophers kind of saw Z- Suzuki as a bit of a hero, but I think Hajime was a bit of an exception there, okay? Well, well okay, there, there was a, the Kyoto schools are wide range, you know, um, uh, to- Tosaka Jun probably didn't like me, but um, uh, but Yes, they, they would have drawn from the uh, the same inspiration. They were they were kind of Buddhist modernizers. Um, I think Tanabe um, was always um, a bit uh, uneasy with the idea of g- getting so much into non selfhood, so much into the non duality that you 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 are there in the here and now, of course, but you're missing out everything else. You're missing out on. The history that leads up to your being in the here and now—you're le- leaving out in the the narrative of 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 human life. Okay, that you do need the uh, the duality to be able to talk about and describe and experience and know you're experiencing the world. And when you kind of abstract it all away back to, into this kind of pre-subject-object pure experience, um, you know, you, you've you've left out out. Um, uh, meaning you've left out history, okay? And how do you get that back in? I think that would have been Tanabe's problem with Suzuki, perhaps. Fascinating. I'll, I'll, I mean, I'll have to pretend that I understood all of that. But um, for our listeners, if uh, anyone's interested in the Kyoto School, you can check out this uh, recent episode with uh, Dr. Takeshi Morisato, uh, also on the Japanese Studies channel. Um, but returning to your book, Rosev, so one interesting thing that you mentioned is how he was influenced by European ideas around his time, but then developed his own philosophy that invited criticism on him later. So what happened? Um, what kind of European ideas influenced his philosophy? How did he develop his own ideas? And um, why is he sometimes criticized so harshly? Okay, well, um, two big influences on Suzuki, the early Suzuki, the young Suzuki, and when he was coming of age in the um, 1880s, 1890s, was um, Shaku Soen and Paul Carus. Shaku Soen was um, a abbot of the temple where he first learned his um, Zen. And Shaku Soen attended the uh, World Parliament of Religions, a big gathering of 
religions, okay, that was held in, in the uh, <clears throat> Chicago area. I think it was held in Chicago, in Illinois, Illinois, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Um, and when when Shaku Soen was there, he met a um, German American German philosopher called Paul Carus, okay, who had his own his own system of philosophy called monism. And when the two of them sat down together, Shakuso and Paul and Paul Carus, they immediately could see kind of uh, huge overlaps and, and connections between Buddhism and and various different strands of of Western philosophy. Um, Okay, which, um, you know, I'd like to say that, you know, years ago, I would have been a bit cynical about their understandings of both Asian and Western philosophy, you know, that we're, we're kind of trained to assume that everything 19th century Westerners had to say about Asian philosophy must have been wrong, you know, it must have been full of, you know, uh, post-colonial uh, um, distortions, whatever. As I get older, I see, no, I think I think these guys, their instincts were correct, you know? You know, I think us humans, we, we all have the, the same range of problems and we're always going to come up with the same kind of ideas about them. And I think when when Shaku and, and Karus sat down, you know, they, they were, it, it was natural that they would find common ground, okay? Anyway, so... Suzuki it went off was um, Shakuen's kind of um, um, well, disciple. Be too too strong word, but he he studied on well meditated under Shakuen, and he went to to work for Paul Carus in 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 Illinois. He, he lived in a town called La Salle, I think, and uh, he worked for him as 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 his, um, in in a publishing press that. Um, a publishing company that Paul Carus uh, 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 managed, okay, called Open Court. It's still in existence to publish um, philosophy books, and and he kind of he learned his trade there. But you know how to how to produce journals, how to produce books. You know he translated various stuff, um, and <clears throat> I think um, you know Paul Carus. How much did he influence Suzuki is is debatable, but definitely picked up on this idea of of kind of Buddhism having an overlap with, with various Western traditions. Um, for example, at the time, pragmatism, William James was kind of in the air. Okay, his idea of, of religion, we should look at religion as, as a experience, uh, as, like as a scientist would look at any experience. Okay, we will look at religion. Um, even the ideas of, of psychology, psychoanalysis that were c- coming to the fore. La- later on, existentialism would have, would have interested Suzuki to some extent. Um, he tended to see, even though the West was getting at certain Buddhist ideas through psychoanalysis, existentialism, and so on, he tended to see that this was the West trying to catch up with the East, okay? That the East had the answers, okay? The East worked that all, all that one out centuries ago, okay? And his job is just to simply describe the solutions Zen had come up with rather than to, you know, in, engage in, the, you know, the kind of the... Um, <clears throat> the discoveries of, of philosophy. Um, okay. Um, now, uh, the criticisms. There have been a lot of criticisms of, of Suzuki. Um, mild criticism and uh, harsh criticisms. And and I, I you know, I can, I'm going to categorize them a bit, okay? Um, the, the mild criticisms, first of all, would be um, people who, who read Suzuki and then st- then 
joined, signed up to the Zen religion, let's say. Okay, people like Philip Kaplow or whatever. I went to get to their Zen temples to find out it's an awful lot of meditation and rigorous lifestyle and not the crazy world of the koans, okay? So that, that's kind of a mild criticism, just that he might have romanticized it a bit. Um, another mild criticism is that uh, anytime Suzuki is t- discussing the history of Zen, he tended to um, just present the mythologies as real history, okay? And people have said, no, no, there's, you have to look at, um, you know, how temples created the texts of koan and how certain masters were... were um, um, emphasized over other masters to to support certain lines and sects of Zen. Okay, that you know that's again, it's it's a mild criticism. Um, um, the more harsh criticism, okay, the big one that that kind of probably has um, shook his reputation a bit was um, a book by Brian Victoria, to, to, uh, Zen at War, where it 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 accuses Z- uh, Suzuki to some extent of uh, being complicit in the war are, are saying things that sounded a bit pro-militarism. Um, that's a, it's a very, it's a very c- complicated area. And, and, uh, you know, I could be all day talking about it. Um, I, I would, uh, okay. My, my opinion would be that, um, Suzuki wrote an awful, awful lot. Okay. And if he was really pro-militarism, it would be very obvious. It wouldn't be just, random quotes, random nuggets, he, he would have come out explicitly saying it. You could, For every quote, you can say where he's, he seems slightly pro-war, there's quotes where he's anti-war. Um, he also spoke out against state Shintoism at, at, you know, at a time when it wouldn't have been profitable for him to do, do so. Um, I think people are disappointed that he wasn't more anti-war um, and uh, that's that's fair enough, okay. It's, but particularly if, if like Victoria, you've you've signed up to the Zen religion, that you know you, you've, you're entitled to your disappointments. Um, I, I like, I would say, you know, um, r- rather than saying, um, oh look, Suzuki, we all think he was a nice guy, and he, um, when Japan went to war, he did nothing. Therefore, he's not a nice guy. I, I don't think that's the way to see it. I think it's Zen, it's, it's Suzuki was a nice instinctively a nice nice person okay instinctively a, a, a good human uh, J- japan went to war he was quite passive uh, you know about it he, he didn't really react that much rather than saying a lot about suzuki i think that says a lot about how people react to a, a society that goes to war and when that war takes a few decades to to emerge okay so if you think about it suzuki was born in 1870 Okay, by 1945, Japan had obviously gone very wicked, very totalitarian, okay? Okay, it's very hard to know at what point you you were, you know, you would have known when Japan had kind of gone to the dark side and become fairly militaristic, okay? Um, you know, in, in the 1890s, Japan won a war against China that, that was considered by the standards at the time quite respectable. Uh, it's, it's won a war against Russia that, that people said, oh, you know, Westerners said, oh, Japan is, is a developed country now. It's a civilized country. It bet Russia in a war. And um, Japan had its empire, Korea, Taiwan, which was a mark of, of respect for a country. Now, that's nowadays we don't see it that way, but people did in those days. Japan sat at the 
that to treat a Versailles table as an allied victorious nation got Saipan as a gift for, because Germany couldn't be trusted with Saipan, okay, and so on. Um, by 1925, Japan was was a, a more or less a democracy, probably the only democracy in Asia. So, okay, you, you can talk about you know that when the League of Nations starts. Um, condemning Japan, that should have been a marker and, and when there was various attempted coup d'etats. But still, it's quite hard. You know, you can understand why somebody could come of age, live all through those decades and not spot it, not notice it, okay, that his, his society was, 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 you know, going down the wrong way, you know. So I, I think I think it's... Um, it's it's hard for us to judge, okay, as as people who didn't experience it, okay, okay. Now I'm not justifying anything. I have my own opinions about World War II and militarism, but I'm, I'm, it's nothing to do with me, okay. But I'm just saying, <laughs> let, let's be fair to Suzuki, okay, okay. Yes, um, yes, okay, yes. And then, okay, another another related criticism is like you'd see this with the philosopher Slavoj Zizek. It's okay, okay, he wasn't a militarist, fair enough, but. Look at what he said. He said things like about the samurai uses the sword and chops off the head, and it doesn't matter. It's the sword that does the chopping off the head, you know, does the chopping. And he said one bad one quote he had is that Zen can be wedded to um, the democracy, fascism, communism, anarchism. He used the verb wedded, but I think what he meant was Zen is apolitical. Okay, if you're living under Mussolini, you can do Zen just like you can do gardening or yoga or play golf okay now the problem is okay if zen is like that well grand fine but what uses zen okay what uses zen knowledge because it contradicts where where suzuki was promoting zen as something that's quite ethical that we have to learn from okay which is it is it something we have to learn if it is then you need to you know go look at what you said about the samurai if it's not well fine okay okay um Okay, so that's that's the, on, in the harsh category. Another harsh, one of the harsh category were recent scholars like um, Robert uh, Bernard Farr and and Robert Scharf, who would have accused Suzuki of of constructing Zen. That Zen is this, you know, it's a it's a religion that exists in in temples where people meditate, and what Suzuki was doing was inventing a Zen. Um, I'm not sure if I, I would I would. Uh, agree with that because i think you know you can't divide between a authentic religion and an inauthentic religion not not if you're a secular scholar okay okay you, you, you know you can't say that's the real zen that's not the real zen okay we're, as academics we're not entitled to do that it's it's a sectarian vision okay and i think he was just describing zen the way somebody from his period would describe zen okay um you know and and so, so I, I would defend them that way. Where then the other attack people would make on Suzuki, and here is where I would join in. Okay, is his Orientalism? Okay, his his just his obsessional Orientalism, just the way he divides it into East the world into East and West. Like first of all, that's a problem. I think you know the, the world. If you can divide the world into East and West, you you really don't know a lot about the world. Okay, which is it's strange because he was so well read, so well traveled. Okay, but but if you think all the countries of the world, all the societies, all the histories can be divided into, you know, I, I think you need to read a few more history of the world books, okay? But it wasn't just that he divides it into two, okay? It's that he had this notion that Westerners, Westerners are those who divide the world into subject and object, and Easterners are those who transcend subject and object, okay? Um, first of all, that, that's a weird thing to say about Westerners, okay? That, that 
I can't visualize how anybody could go around the world constantly dividing themselves into subject and objects. Okay, that you, you, that'd be a psychotic breakdown. Okay, okay, but also. If, if you look at what he says about Zen elsewhere, okay, and when he uses uh, Linzai, Linzai is the great um, ancient Chinese philosopher of Zen. He, the way Linzai describes it, and Suzuki agrees with him and, describe, and, and, and quotes Linzai, is that subject, objects, no subject, no object, sub, one subject and no object. These are kind of four different states of mind that we tend, tend to come in and out of, okay? And it's not dependent on your nationality. It's, it's dependent on your state of mind, whether you're seeing the world as objects where subject and objects have disappeared for you, you know. And, th- and when, he, when, he div- when, he, when Suzuki describes Westerners as the people who divide the world in subject and object and Easterners people who transcend subject and object, he, he's misunderstanding his own interpretation of, of Linzai, okay? So I think that's his biggest failing for me anyway is the orientalism and 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 connected to that also his um his um romanticization of 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 japan which hooked zen to japan to such an extent that again he missed his own point that zen is if zen is the spirit of all religion zen is about being in the here and now i don't think you can talk so much about you know Oh, Zen! Zen is Zen is everywhere. The spirit of everything. Oh, and by the way, it's only in Japan. Okay, that's an obvious contradiction. Do you know? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I know. I really appreciate you saying that because it's actually something that I've been thinking about for my own uh, research project, which is uh, D.T. Suzuki and actually his generation of uh, philosopher or intellectuals' roles in the promotion or in, I guess, yeah, in the promotion of this so-called unique Japanese aesthetics, which very much based off, um, you know, a lot of Okakura Tenshi and, of course, Suzuki's ideas about the embracement of nature, appreciation of detail and things as such. So um, how would you view, if I could slip in my um, very uh, personal interest question, how would you characterize Suzuki's role in this establishment of the so-called Japanese aesthetics theories? Um, yeah, I, I presume he uh, was quite influential in it. Um, uh, a, lo- a lot of his target audience was um, the West. Like, for example, his book J- Japan in or Zen in Japanese Culture was was written in English for e- English. Readers and as, as Zen or Suzuki scholars Stefan Grace points out, um, was part of a kind of a, a soft power <laughs> campaign by the, the ja- Japanese government at the time to kind of you know say well our you know some writing is not as you know barbaric as it might seem. Um, okay, um, and, um, uh, and and so yes, so, so definitely for for the West for for a long time, the, the, you know Japanese art and so on would have been seen through the, the prism of, of, of this notion of Zen, okay, of, of the artist disappearing into the, uh, the works of art and so on. And I think the um, thing about Suzuki, his, his impact in, he always had a rebounded impact on, on Japan, where the more he became influential in the West, he was making his name in Japan on the basis that, you know, the, the Westerners thought he was so fascinating. So I, I think... You know, um, a lot of how he just tried to describe Japan to the West 
came back to Japan and became Japan's own description of itself. Um, there's actually, uh, was recently a book um, by um, Yamada Shoji, okay, a, a Japanese scholar who looked at Suzuki and, and describes that a lot. Like he, he describes that um, Zen garden in, in Kyoto, Yuan, isn't it? And just he, he charts how it went from being just a regular Zen garden to, to suddenly being part of this, you know, huge Zen vision and experience and, and linking it a lot to um, Suzuki, okay? Um, yeah, it, it, the book in English is called Shots, Shots in the Dark by Yamada um, Yoji, Shoji, sorry. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, well, I would I would like to ask more about that, but I guess we should return to the book. Um, so you in- included translations of two of his essays, The Place of Peace in Our Heart and uh, Religion and Science. So why did you choose these two in particular? And I guess um, as a scholar of translation studies, um, what do you, what kind of... Um, process was it like to translate such a philosophical yet as you said orientalist um person's work okay yeah um well first of all i actually had difficulty finding texts that that were suitable because i i found this because uh, it's about philosophy i found this text about zen zen to tetsugaku zen and philosophy and i i spent ages translating it uh, into English, and then I discovered, to my shock and horror, it had been originally written in English, <laughs> and I'd been translating the Japanese, his own Japanese version of it. Okay, <laughs> and then another one. I was about to embark on another translation of of a, of a, a section of a book, and I discovered it it, it had already been translated by uh, Mr. Stefan Grace, actually. So, but eventually, I, I found these two texts, and um, what what I was happy with was um, they were they. From one is from the early Suzuki and one is from the late Suzuki, and it shows a, a huge consistency in in his thinking. Um, yeah, the process of translation did the early one was very difficult. Okay, because pre pre World War Two Japanese tends to use an awful lot of uh, kanji, um, even even you know often Chinese grammatical structures almost. Okay, at least in in the in the written terms of the written characters. Um, and um, yeah, it, it's just it's very distant from from the, the Japanese I, I be learning and hearing and experiencing every day here. Um, and um, um, yeah, uh, inter- um, but but I, I, I did enjoy it. And, you know, uh, um, I think that the point I've always made in my philosophy of translation is that the um, the the translator is in particularly in intellectual work the, the translator is the interpreter okay and i have to accept that, that that is i'm cursed with that freedom okay that there's no big dictionary out there that's going to tell me exactly how to translate that particular term it's up to me i'm the the, the book literally <laughs> stops with me okay so in um you know i've i've over the years learned that as a translator you you do have that freedom and don't don't be scared about it. Don't think you're don't be guilty about it. Okay. Don't feel guilty that, oh, I've no right to translate this way. No, nobody else is going to translate it, you know? You're you know, you or I mean what I mean is you're as good as any other translator, okay? And it's up to you. You it's your choice. So, you know, I I, I went at it uh, that way, you know. 
Um, you know, and and it, there's always lovely conundrums like you know d- d- little j- j- um, Zen in in Japanese anyway would have certain lovely um, phrases. Okay, that that can be written in four characters or or you know certain kind of um, uh, little metaphors, whatever. So you know, I, I relegated some of them to to footnotes to try and try and you know keep them in. You know, amazing. And uh, from these works, um, how do you view the relationships among religion, philosophy, and science in Suzuki's philosophy? So one of the essays, religion, science, right? Um, he kind of talks about this. But um, what's the historical and social context that may have contributed to his views of this, these relationships among, you know, religion, science, philosophy, Right. Yes. Well, well um, yeah, Suzuki from, you know, from very early on, like what I've translated Place of Peace in the Heart is, is actually one of his first works. OK. And he, yeah, he was always he was always fascinated about this question of the relationship between religion, philosophy and science, um, uh, because it, it was assumed by a lot of people that one would knock out the other. OK. OK. Usually science. The assumption would eventually be all just science. That's all we will know. Even even philosophy will be kicked out. You know, some people have had that expectation even now. Um, he saw religion and philosophy and science as all compatible with each other. If there's a conflict between them, that's because there's a misunderstanding. He, he felt that they all equally validly, not equally, but they all validly describe the same world, okay, okay, and they all have their own um, part to play in giving us knowledge about that world, okay. So none, none knocks out the other. None can be reduced to the other. Um, having said that, he did feel that religion is the superior form of knowledge, okay, because religion refers to the ultimate. It refers to a part of the world that science and philosophy can never get to. Part of the world, part of experienced, okay? You exi- you existing in the here and now, okay? Qua here and now, as the here and now. Science and philosophy cannot get to there, okay? And religion can, okay? The, the, the knowledge of religion, the ultimate kind of certainty of religion can. Um, and the, the, the idea is that we could, we could conceivably live without science and philosophy uh, as in this strict kind of reasoning, logic, whatever, okay? Um, you know, most of human history has been like that. We haven't had science and philosophy. That doesn't mean that we should should get rid of that, okay? But the point is there they've been, hu- humans have been able to live without them. But religious knowledge is something we will always crave, okay? If we're denied or reject or, or you know, negate our religious knowledge, we will be lacking something, okay? It's not like not having scientific knowledge it's it's generally it's a knowledge that if you don't have there will be something seriously lacking in in your in your life okay um in terms of the yeah the historical context as i was saying um he was coming of age in where in um first of all meiji japan was was modernizing modernizing quite fast there was this new faith in positivism like fukuzawa yukichi was the most prominent philosopher at the time uh, an avowed positivist saying that Japan has to be rush, you know, has to embrace r- Western rationality, Western science, you know, and 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 get rid of all these older um, um, bi- um, 
kind of schools of knowledge, okay, like Confucianism, Buddhism, whatever that holds Japan back, okay. The West as well was experiencing kind of a, 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 a um, kind of a tri- triumphalism of triumphalism of science, okay. A, ev- you know, evolution, of course, was coming to the fore. So there was this sense that you know, science is king. Science is the the, the master of of you know, you know, knowledge and and religion's going to go downhill. Religion's going to decline and be seen as superstition, and and you know, be um, eventually we uh, humans will outgrow it. So he he was responding to that, and he was he he did acknowledge that you know, religion can't go against science. Okay, we can't if if it's science versus superstition, science has to win. Okay, he 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 says, yeah, he he feels that you know. Yeah, re- religion. Religion must always respect science, not try to argue against it, but just simply point out that science can't explain everything, and that bits that it can't explain, that's where you're going to be finding the religion. Okay, not not as kind of a you know a gap of the gods, as in well we can't explain it, so let's just assume it's religion. No, that there is this genuine knowledge there. Okay, um, you know it's not it's not superstition, it's not made up, it's not fanciful uh, hope that it is genuine something. You can know, okay, okay, um, uh, yeah, yeah. That's that's what I would say. Yeah, that's such an interesting view, and I feel like a lot of modern day people could actually benefit from <laughs> thinking that way. Um, so this, um, despite all these controversies around his work and uh, his major role in the promotion of Zen Buddhism. Um, how do you think we should use um, Suzuki's word nowadays, especially in teaching? So since um, this series is designed to be used as textbooks in the classroom, but we're also facing this situation that Japanese philosophy is so seldom taught or taken seriously in the teaching of philosophy, especially you know, um, the, 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 the majority of um, works out there and teaching contents about Western philosophy. So how do you think um, Suzuki's philosophy can fit into this? And um, how can it be used in the teaching of Japanese history or Japanese culture? Yes. Um, well, yeah. Um, well, um, yeah. For, first of all, like Suzuki, um, he gave a very um, accessible introduction to people, to, to Westerners for many decades to the whole broad scope of Asian philosophy and, and Japanese philosophy. And I still think he, he plays that role. OK, um, of course, now, now um, you know, there is a lot more uh, knowledge about the, the more general Kyoto school of Nishida and so on, but still Suzuki is is a good gateway into these other philosophers, other Kyoto school philosophers. Okay, you, you very rarely get a, such a thorough exp- and ex- energetic explanation of just what's um, unusual and possibly pro- possibly different, or you know, worth noting in in um, in in uh, Japanese philosophy or. or, or you know the Buddhist strand of Japanese uh, philosophy. Um, um, uh, so, sorry, just a second. I just had a. a, a there was a, yes, and um, the other thing is um, that um, Suzuki was constantly 
uh, he, he came of age, you know, um, when uh, Western philosophy was prevalent in Japan. He was fully aware of it. And, you know, arguably he was educated in that as much as educated in, in the, the Buddhist tradition. So when he's talking about his Buddhist philosophy, he is constantly mindful of how it plays against or, or coheres with Western philosophy. There, there wasn't this compartmentalization where there's your Western philosophy over here, here's your Buddhism over there. He, he did try to separate it, but um, but constantly he's still talking within a certain broad philosophical discourse that can include both Western and Buddhist philosophy. So I think there there is that important lesson as well, that it's not when you go into Japanese philosophy or Japanese Buddhist philosophy, you're, you're not jumping out of something, out of everything you've already known, okay? There are already, there is already over there stuff that you've already known about, already learned, and probably already thought about before you even enter it. And I think that that's a, a very important lesson as well. And, and let's say in, in terms of how he would be relevant today, um, as, as you were saying, the first, first of all, his views on religion versus science are, you know, were, were quite maturely taught out and are still hugely relevant. You know, recently, science has researched against scientism and, and, you know, crude materialism, you know, and, you know, Suzuki will, all, you know, will always be a, quite an articulate counterpoint to that. Um, also, I think, you know, going back way back years ago when I first encountered Suzuki, what excited me about him was his, his philosophy of individualism, okay, that no matter what system or society, whatever you're in, you there you are. You, you still exist right now. It's not your, you know, it's not your completely your social identity that determines you. Like Lin Zai, the, the, again, the great Chinese philosopher of, of Zen way back in the Tang Dynasty, says that he talks about the, the um, as Suzuki would translate it, the, the man of no rank, okay, the, the, the human of, of no status, okay, that behind your your flesh of blood, you know, you, you are there, okay, regardless of what social identities you're, you're getting, okay? I think that's an extremely important cause, uh, point for, for nowadays because, you know, the, the fashion nowadays is to go on and on about our identities, okay? And he's a reminder that behind all that, you, you still exist in the here and now, and that's where you start from and end with. And that can't be, you know, explained away or, or reduced out, out of the picture, and I think that's an important message as well he, he has for us. That's that's absolutely great. Um, yeah, I, I definitely agree. And I, I think um, from this conversation, I I will probably have to change how I talk about Suzuki in my own dissertation. So I have you to thank for that. But no, then thank you. Yeah, no, thank, thank you so much for this um, wonderful conversation. It was very enlightening. Okay, thank you. Thank you for for and your wonder, for talking to me and your wonderful questions. <laughs> yeah, and there's so much about DT Suzuki that we didn't get to cover in yes, this chat. Yes, yes. Yeah, so for our listeners, if you want to learn more about this legendary figure, make sure to check out this book, uh, The Zen Buddhist Philosophy of DT Suzuki. This is Jin Yi from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you soon.